welcome in to another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. It's good to be here with you today. How are you? How are your classes going? How are your students? Don't complain about them. They're great people. They're there relying on you. The semester starts on a Monday. The semester starts on a Monday. That's what we tell ourselves, sure, but the reality is that for a lot of instructors working in higher education, graduate students, contingent faculty, even tenured professors at universities with smaller English departments, the semester starts on the date of the pre-semester mini-conference. Did you have a pre-semester mini-conference this year? This is old hat for a lot of you. Hey, do you know Dr. Ben Harley? He's at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. We're going to talk to him a little bit later as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. So hold on for that. We'll get to Ben. It's a great conversation. You'll want to hear it. But these pre-semester mini-conferences, these departmental and occasionally interdepartmental events, they might range from half-day workshops focused on the mission of the writing program to day-long conferences with breakout sessions led by your peers and colleagues in the department and from other institutional entities and offices like student services or the writing center. For me, these events have been a part of my uh, professional development, development at my last three stops, ISU, where I'm at now, UAB, and the University of Montevallo. Last spring, I led my first session uh, at one of these events and called What Do You Know About Antecedent Knowledge? Uh, it was a workshop designed to, to allow instructors the space to create assignments that they might implement in their classroom to approach the concept of antecedent knowledge with their students. This fall, just a few weeks ago, I, along with a peer, led a Q&A session with graduate student instructors working in the writing program at our pre-semester mini-conference this year. This was the second session I led, of course, after the one last year. But this was the first year I wasn't involved with new instructor orientation. All right, So I was excited to meet the new cohort. And I began planning. I wrote down a couple of things. But then I tried to think about how my own positionality, my own ability to impart wisdom, of which I, I think I have very little, would transfer to these probably exhausted, new, newly minted PhD students after a week and a half of orientation. Um, so instead, I threw down the pen and decided to let the questions they had guide the conversation. During the session, this turned out to be a pretty clever idea, um, and my peer and I were able to answer pointed questions instead of blabbering on for a long time about our own experiences. But... I did write three uh, three things down in the notes folder on my phone to make sure I worked in the conversation with the new cohort. I'll share them here now. One is to make sure to maintain an activity or an exercise routine. Uh, two, meet everybody in the department. 
Uh, and three, graduate school is constant professional development. So I'll walk through those really quickly, what I mentioned. Uh, one, make sure to maintain an activity or exercise routine. For me, this has been so important to my success in graduate school. I play basketball with a couple of guys from the department. I run every day. And these are great ways to break up the monotony of study and also cultivate good mental health habits. Um, you got to meet everyone in the department. Um, my department is huge. We're talking 60, 70 graduate students, a full faculty. So I think it's important to meet everybody, get advice from everybody, listen to people in your discipline, outside your discipline. Uh, a nugget of advice you get from someone that's also a creative writer might really change your decision about something concerning graduate school. And finally, graduate school is constant professional development. So don't be a jerk to people. That's what I told them. Uh, the example I gave here was email responses. So you don't have to hurry and respond to every email that you get. And a matter of fact, you shouldn't. But you still need to respond in a timely and professional manner. And then let the skills you learn in doing so transfer to all aspects of, of graduate school experience. So I don't necessarily think the things I mentioned to the new cohort are groundbreaking or landmark or life-changing or whatever. A lot of it came from Gregory Colon Semenza's highly recommended book, Graduate Study for the 21st Century. Uh, but I said them. I enjoyed meeting the new cohort uh, one day uh, down the road. Maybe uh, perhaps something mentioned uh, in that session will resonate uh, with somebody who was present. So Dr. Ben Harley, we want to hear more about him. Uh, it was, again, a pleasure to talk to Ben. He's doing a lot of work with sonic rhetorics and sonic intimacy. Uh, as this project moves forward, I think that this conversation uh, might be viewed as a turning point early on uh, for the podcast and, and for this project. And we're excited and to know Ben and learn more about him and see the work he does going forward. So, Here's my conversation with Dr. Ben Harley. So where is that in Illinois? Uh, Rock Island. Uh, so it's northwest. Northwest. Is that near Benedictine University? No. So actually, Benedictine is outside of Chicago. It's in a small suburb called Lyle, which you might have heard of if you have a friend who lives in a bigger suburb called Naperville. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So it's got this little track of land right there in the Chicago suburbs. And uh, it was a really weird situation where the high school I was at in uh, Springfield, Illinois, so down south, got bought out by a community college in Springfield. So they gave us a discount to go there. And then they got bought out by Benedictine University in uh, Lyle. And so I got another discount to go there. So it was like this really weird happenstance. Uh, and I uh, where, you know, got some education paid for and take, and uh, some discounts. So I, I had to take the opportunity, you know. Yeah, definitely. And you got your bachelor's there in communications. Yes, communications with an S. Uh, so <laughs> later on, uh, I'd be working with some folks in uh South Car at the University of South Carolina, where we don't really have much of a distinction between our English faculty and our co and our communication 
studies faculty. And so I had to be really specific that I majored in communications, which means like I did a lot of mass media. I did a lot of journalism, did some PR, did some marketing. Um, and I loved, like really did love the hands-on nature of that study, right? So like I do some law and ethics classes and stuff where I had to kind of sit back and think, but there's also a ton of like, okay, grab this camera, go shoot this news story. Um, you know, I remember this kind of a silly example of what we got to do there, but there's video of me talking about our blood drive while they're taking blood out of me. Uh, <laughs> and then the conversation, um, went on so long that I got faint and they had to like lay me down <laughs> instead of having me sit seated. And of course the editor loved that. And so that, that was on the news for a while. Oh, wow. Um, I'm assuming Benedictine is a Roman Catholic institution. <sighs> How was that experience? So actually I, uh, went to a Roman Catholic institution from kindergarten. So it actually struck me as fairly similar. Benedictines are really interesting because they are um, archivists primarily. So they're big on like archiving and preserving knowledge and education. So like we had um, manuscripts from Hildegard von Bingen actually in, in our, uh, in the monastery. And so it was kind of really cool. Uh, but to be quite honest, the monks were always kind of just in the background. Like uh, we would have really interesting conversations with them occasionally. Like I remember this really long conversation about casuistry with a monk um, that, that was really interesting. But for the most part, like our classes were taught by scholars just like anywhere else, uh, people with their PhD in their field. Um, you know, one thing that was like really amazing is there was a woman there um, – I'm just going to like avoid names just because I never know the ethics of saying someone's name on a podcast. Sure, sure. Uh, but there was a, there was a nun there who had published, she had like two doctorates in the hard sciences after entering the nun, uh, the, after taking up the nunhood, taking the veil. And she had written books that were actually banned from the Vatican libraries. And so like, as, so you learn a lot about this kind of, kind of traditional Catholic, whatever, but you also learn a lot about how to, push against that and, and kind of this independent spirit. And that's something I really loved. And I think also the the kind of complication, the ways in which people who are really entrenched in any kind of dogma uh, understand its shortcomings and its complications and are working to improve it from within. So, I mean, it's a really, uh, it was a great spot, but I would say a lot of that kind of religious stuff was in the, was more in the background than the foreground. So then the curriculum wasn't necessarily built around Catholicism or, um, you had to, you know, make your class and then go to mass and things like that. You weren't there doing that kind of stuff. No. So when I was in high school, totally, totally. When I was in high school, like we had to go to mass every Friday. Um, we needed, but even my high school was run by Ursuline sisters. Uh, and the motto of the Ursulines is serviam or I will serve. So like the way that religion really, uh, made itself manifest there was that I needed 150 service hours to graduate from high school. And then at Benedictine, uh, I think we just needed 50 service hours. And so, um, and that was kind of the most in, in which religion kind of uh, entered the curriculum was that we would have our kind of core humanities classes all had service elements uh, that, that we had to kind of work with uh, the community with, which was amazing. You know, it was great. Sounds interesting. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm a, a Baptist, a Christmas, 
uh, Christmas Eve Baptist from Central Alabama. So I'm I'm completely enthralled when when people start talking about monks and and nuns nunneries and things with certain names. Uh, it's kind of foreign to me, really. I mean, to be honest, it really is. I mean, I'm one of these wonderful people. There's a whole group of us called uh, who, when you're like, oh, what's your religion? We go, oh, I was raised Catholic, which is a weird way of saying like, oh, I know a bunch of stuff about religion, but also I'm not really religious. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I had something I was going to go. Oh, but what's really funny to me is what non-Catholics know about Catholics. Um, because like someone's like, oh, so like our St. Peter's bones in the, in the Vatican. I was like, we never talked about it. Like that's actually not an important part of what we believe. <laughs> I don't, I don't know where the bones are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, no, and we never were like sold relics or anything. Um, however, I can name all of the mysteries of the rosary. So like, <laughs> yeah, I, I can name all the members of Monty Python. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, blessed are the cheesemakers, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you're at Benedictine University. You've got your communications degree. And then you head west to the University of Northern Colorado. Uh, What city is that in? That's in Greeley, Colorado, uh, which is a little further from the interstate. uh, But once you get on the interstate, it's like 45 minutes from Fort Collins, about an hour from Denver. Okay, so Fort Collins, that's where, is that where the Air Force Institute is? Uh, No, I think that's Colorado Springs. I know there's a big Air Force base in Colorado Springs. Uh, Colorado State University is in Fort Collins, and then Boulder is where University of Colorado is. Okay, I've never been to Colorado, but I do want to get out there. I know that you were studying English literature there. Uh, Your thesis was entitled Expansions of the Public Sphere, Terry Suarez and Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, what was that project about? <laughs> Actually, this is the project that got me into rhetoric. So, okay. okay. I, yeah. <laughs> so I got into the English degree because I really liked the idea of like being able to spend time looking at art. And I really liked the methods of English, actually, like taking a text really seriously, looking at the context in which it was created um, and really trying to not pull uh, a definitive meaning out of it, but to try to understand it better by taking it extremely seriously. And so that's what uh, pulled me to English literature. And then uh, my first semester there, I was taking a class called Literature in the Public Intellectual. And we read Mary Wollstonecraft's Treatise of the Rights of Women. And uh, as, as I was reading that, I was like, oh, you know, there's a band I've been listening to called Les Butcherettes that actually has a song called I'm Hungry for More Than Rousseau that is kind of leveling these same arguments against Rousseau and against this kind of thinking. And so I was like, oh, man, like it's weird that when we talk about publics, we talk about them as in one specific time or place. But really, a public conversation utilizes text and builds off ideas that are centuries old. And so I use this kind of idea of Terry Suarez utilizing Mary Wollstonecraft. She even gives her a shout out in that song. I want to thank Mary W for the inspiration um, to kind of rethink this argument against Rousseau that takes, that kind of combines um, that time period in our own uh, to kind of create a contemporary feminist manifesto in, in song. And so I really love this idea and wanted to study that. Uh, but then I had a conversation with uh, my director and she's like, well, how is that literature? And I was like, oh, I guess it's not. Uh, I guess it's uh, cultural studies. 
And she's like, oh, we don't give a degree in cultural studies. So I was like, okay, I guess it's rhetoric. Um, and then once I got into the PhD program, I had to backtrack a little bit more and figure out exactly what that meant. And it took me in different places. Uh, but also I'd had um, a great mentor at University of Northern Colorado who helped me, who she ran our first year um, first time teaching. It was to, it was to help new teachers understand what they were teaching in rhetoric and, and, and to learn pedagogy behind it. And that was such a positive experience, not only for me, but for my entire cohort uh, that I had really wanted to go towards rhetoric and composition anyway, just after that experience. So the fact that I could um, take those skills that I had learned in English, relate them to texts and situations I found more interesting, and also be able to really focus and have legitimized my want to teach uh, composition classes and, and freshman composition classes. Uh, you know, that move was extremely satisfying for me. As someone who got their MA in English literature and postmodern African American literature, and then kind of moved towards rhetoric and composition. You know, for me, it was a moment. I was standing there at, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, as an adjunct, and I and I was like, "This is what I want to do. This is what I'm doing. I'm standing in front of a composition classroom, and I'm like, I'm a writing studies scholar, and I have a English literature degree. So it's always interesting to me um, to hear how people kind of make that shift or make the, or fall into, you know, the discipline." Yeah, and I think it's it's really validating once mm -hmm. for a lot of folks who don't know about comprehension, you know, in their undergrad, and and they're into English or they're into communication or communications, and that's why they get there. Um, but the idea that they really want to focus on writing and they and they enjoy discussing like how to put together an argument and how to communicate something to an audience, um, it's it, when you find out there's a whole discipline around that, it's like extremely I don't know for me it was joy you know I was like oh my god I can do this and like people take it seriously and and there's a whole bunch of scholarship that can allow me to do it better uh, that was that was amazing it's a great feeling um so so you're at northern Colorado and then you make the move back east all the way across the country to Columbia South Carolina um to study at the University of South Carolina mm -hmm. um how's how's living in Columbia Columbia is a great city and I moved into like the worst house they have. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so it was good. You know, like there, there are weird things about the, in the South, like uh, palmetto bugs and stuff, uh, but got used to that real quickly. And, you know, university of South Carolina was such a rich place, uh, such an intellectually rich place to be. Uh, classes where we were challenged or we reading a bunch but also like really generative discussions and my entire cohort we came together uh really well and would love to and, and would just get together and talk about these big ideas constantly and uh kind of help each other work through arguments and work through ideas um and so like once i found that community in columbia south carolina it was really like, oh, I know where I'm meant to be. Like, I know uh, that this is a place that's, that's uh, interested in the same types of questions I am. And people are are going to be nice about it and help me think through it and want to engage me with this stuff. Um, and that was awesome. 
you graduated with your PhD in May 2018, and your dissertation was titled Writing with the Risk, Dangerous Discourse, and Event-Based Pedagogy. We'll get more to your teaching later in the podcast, but really quickly, what in a, in a nutshell, what, what is event-based pedagogy? So actually, I took that from uh, this, this book by... Um, uh, this book by Joe Panzer, where he's talking about Deleuze and John Cage, and he's talking about uh, iterative music, this this kind of music in which it's not about fidelity, it's not about kind of creating the same thing over and over again. Instead, it's about creating loose instructions that that people can uh, participate in, and thinking about music not specifically as like a composition that gets stored away, but as an event. And I wanted to think about the classroom in the same way, um, as something that like I kind of set the conditions of possibility, but I'm not uh, trying to force students into one space or the other. And I think that's how a lot of people approach uh, composition pedagogy anyway, but I wanted to really kind of think through it and and and, uh, and really make sense of this idea uh, for myself and others so that people could think about, you know, setting the conditions of possibility in a classroom and, and how to do that in a way that also kind of hedges on risk. You know, we uh, were in an age where, you know, if, if you have students do blogs and people can access that, like what's the ramifications of that, that what are the ethics there? Um, and so I wanted to think about something that both enables, uh, this kind of free play, but also has a little bit of foresight for some of the risks involved. It sounds like some of that work might be applicable to the different social media projects or social media activities that we do in our classes as well, or maybe even just signing up for a Gmail account, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you were at uh, this isn't a secret. You were at uh, the computers and writing this summer. You did a whole podcast episode of it, um, and and the keynote there, you know, when he was talking about uh, user agreements and, and having, stu- you know, should we be asking students or requiring students to uh, to to utilize technologies that might be tracking them or that that, that have these kind of long trails that that they can't. Uh, necessarily know what's going to happen with their text, their identities, or whatever. Um, you know, I think that those are really important questions, and I don't think I answered them with the depth that he did. I wish I could remember his name right off the top of my head. Um, but you know, that's his scholarship. I think is a great place to look for that. So you left the University of South Carolina upon graduation, and you moved to Northern State University. In South Dakota. Which city is that in in South Dakota? Aberdeen, South Dakota. You've never heard of it, but it is the third largest city in South Dakota. (laughs) Okay, the third largest city in South Dakota, Aberdeen. Uh, Well, I'm sure that that's been a drastic change. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that experience coming off the job market at USC and and then landing at Aberdeen and your first year uh, as a faculty member there. Yeah, you know. I love Northern State University, and I'm really lucky to be a part of this community that serves this kind of uh, more rural South Dakotan um, uh, student population. And, and it's just really great to be a part of this and, and to work with the students that I'm allowed to work with. Um, that said, the kind of preparation that they're getting in high school is different from that uh, than they had at the University of South Carolina. Um, kind of expectations for you know how every region of the country you go to has a slightly different uh mode of what it means to be polite and so learning a lot of that stuff as well has has been a bit of a learning curve and so you know um 
an easy example is like a lot of my students had never thought about their essay writing as an argument before. And so at the University of South Carolina, I talk about, you know, start very early on in a 101 or a 201 class about like, what is argument? But mostly what I'm doing is I'm refining a conception that they're already thinking about their writing at, uh, in Northern state, you know, when I'm saying, what is an argument? Well, they're like, oh, well, I know what an essay is and I've been writing these essays, but I haven't really been thinking about engaging with audiences in the same way. And so like, um, that kind of definitional work, uh, is, is much different and, and students, uh, enjoy i think thinking about their stuff as arguments think about affecting audiences and think about well how can i actually utilize this stuff in the real world um but it's a lot of stuff that they hadn't really thought about prior and so um the the 101 classroom becomes this like really cool space where you get to explore this stuff for the first time and ask students like how they're thinking about this um without having a whole lot of background in it that that's got to be a, a heck of a lot of labor though to to think about restructuring some of the ways in which you go about introducing information and the expectations that you might have coming out of one program and landing at another. Yeah. You know, I don't, that's an interesting way of putting it. And actually I would say the more I labor, the worse it works out. Um, I, (laughs) I think this is a situation in which my students at Northern, you know, they have so many experiences. They have so much that they bring to the table that if I can open up the conversation, we can start talking about getting them to think about audience and argument and rhetoric, you know, things that they hadn't really thought about ever before. You know, um, I had AP exams throughout my, my entire uh, graduate career. And so I kind of thought everyone knew, like all high school students were familiar with like ethos, pathos, logos, right? And so I was like skimming all that over that stuff. I'm like, oh no, we need to stop and slow down and talk about this because it's not really talked about in South Dakota. Um, and so I realized like the more I tried to be like, okay, here's what ethos is. And, like, here's like five examples of it. The more my students were just like, dude, too much. And the more I slowed down and we just like sat through one example and we worked through, um, I'm doing a lot more group work, uh, a lot more group writing projects. And the more I do that kind of stuff, like the, the, the better the conversation is. And I think it's really just acknowledging, uh, the kind of wealth of information that my students have to bring to the table. Mm, absolutely so we've talked about your education a great deal let's kind of even focus on your scholarship a bit a bit um i know that you've had um last year late last year in december you had um sounding intimacy published in the journal of multimodal rhetorics um, I know that that's a project that you're um, excited about and, and continue to be excited about. Um, what, what, what all was that project about? So this actually came out of a sound class uh, that I had with Byron Hawk and University of South Carolina. And it was this great class where you're we talking about sound as a medium and we're thinking about it kind of it's, it's material situation. So that class was run that we were kind of discussing how it's been dealt with in how the how sound has been dealt with in composition simultaneously thinking about it as, as kind of a material medium, right? Like the, the, what did it, what does it do? And I was struck by this idea that like sound waves like permeate us, right? They, they like, sometimes they go through us and sometimes they bounce off of us and, uh, and how it resonates and reverberates is really in relation to bodies and the bodies change the sound and the sound changes the bodies and if you look at a lot, a lot of the kind of scientific work that's been done on this, uh, you can see that like 
when people listen, they get a better, they feel like they get a better sense for uh, kind of other people. And like when we dance together, um, it's it, like we feel really bonded together. So like if, if you and me were to dance, like we'd feel uh, we'd feel closer. And if we did it in sync, we'd it'd be a little even more so. And like if it's like really rigorous dancing, that even creates more bonds. And so like there's something really cool to me about not just sound as this particularly intimate medium um, that, that kind of permeates bodies, but also about like all these social activities that surround sound uh, that kind of make it this really interesting medium. So I, I, I wanted to kind of explore that in this piece and, and, you know, I'm not the first person to do it actually uh, as I kind of, it's one of those things where after you, after you get on the project, while you're researching it, I realized like, oh, Dominic Peckman's doing really cool work with this. Um, but then kind of afterwards, I was like, oh, Tina Camp did really cool work with this. Um, Trish Nicole Campbell did really cool work with this. Like there are a bunch of scholars who um, who are thinking about intimacy. I mean, even Steph Sarasso, I don't know if she uses the word, but she talks a lot about that same kind of stuff. Byron Hawke's new book, Resounding, this, uh, Resounding the Rhetorical, does a lot of this work. Um, and again, I don't think he uses the word intimacy, but it's, it's again, thinking about sound relations to body. So I wanted to kind of explore that and i wanted to do it with sound you know i love doing these kind of sonic compositions i love being at this podcast by the way i love what you're doing here um so like yeah i want to explore it that way so for those that want to check out that sounding intimacy it's in the journal of multimodal rhetorics volume two number two that's december 2018 um so that was last year it's august uh 19 now right classes are starting uh what are you working on now what, what are we looking for where's your research focused at right now oh i love that what have you done for me lately question uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so i have something out uh for uh i just got uh revised uh what what, what is that uh an r and r what does that stand for revise and resubmit. <laughs> resubmit. thank you do you remember the ghost ship fire a few years back i think so yeah yeah, so it was this club in L.A., and it was like – it was an underground club. Like, it wasn't officially licensed by the city or anything, and it caught on fire, and like 36 people died. It was extremely sad. Yeah. Um, and then on 4chan message boards, a bunch of alt-right guys got together and were like, oh, we can call fire departments and close down more of these clubs because these are like, quote, hotbeds of liberal activism. And so I was like, oh, man, that's – that's crazy, right? Like they're, they're closing down these places. And then like a bunch of clubs closed down, like Renaceropolis. Uh, there was a spot in Baltimore, um, Glass Menage. Like th- there were a bunch of, bunch of places that then closed. And like you can't say for sure it was because of the alt-right or if it was because businesses were trying to gentrify those areas or if it's because of safety concerns or if like those three things overlap in weird ways, right? Um, but I, I became really interested in this question of like why these spaces – what does the alt-right have against these spaces in particular? And, and like some of it really is because like, you know, they can, they'll allow people to have black lives matter meetings or they will serve as uh, homeless shelters or community, community literacy places, or because, you know, uh, uh, people from the LGBTQ community or people of color will, or musicians of color will, will be in these spaces. Some of it's a lot of it's because of that, but a lot of it's also just because like, music is this intimate way in which we make connections with people across difference. And like, I think just ideologically the, the idea um, that, that people are doing this and that, that specifically making music, like that's what all these places have in common is that they, they're places where music is made. 
and and you know i think that music necessarily is anti-fascist right like fascists use music too um but i think that if you have a spot where music can be made that helps to bring people together and music is such an effective way of doing that um that it becomes really uh frightening to groups that thrive when people are scared of each other and don't want to connect with one another. Man, that's really poignant. I mean, I really like that. I think that that's important. I, um, and I agree with you a hundred percent. Thanks. I mean, I was a, I was an old scene kid back in the day. Um, like, you know, every Friday at the punk show, uh, every afternoon in my buddy's garage for band practice, uh, <laughs> you got the monks to like drop you off, you know, like down the street from the punk show. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I, I remember once I showed up in my uniform and like it was a really weird mix of people thinking like that's awesome and like who the fuck is this kid? <laughs> uh, so yeah, this has been I, a long gestating process project, is what you're saying. Yeah, you know, so actually I'm in a writing group right now uh, with a couple other scholars and uh, Trevor Meyer, actually, he's going to be on your uh, on, on the podcast, right? Yeah, I'm talking to Trevor uh, later this month. I know you guys have done some things together. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, me, him and a couple other folks are in this writing group together and um, and they really pushed me to get more of myself into the in when i'm writing about the punk scene right so i was originally writing about this kind of like step back and i'd be like okay well here's the case study here's the alt right and they're like dude you don't sound like you you don't sound like you actually know what the fuck's going on like be a punk kid dude and so i was like fuck it so i kind of wrote this piece trying to to, to utilize that ethos and then i i'm, I'm working on a piece for uh, i'm working on another piece that's a sound piece um talking about what the hell's that piece about I'm just kind of talking about ways in which we talk about publics as these stable and homogenous things. We need to think about them as more diffuse and we need to think about them as part of the networks, uh, uh, part of these like larger social networks. And and we don't really do that very well. And so I'm using uh, my old punk scene in Springfield, Illinois as, as a case study for this. And so again, they're like, you gotta use your voice. You gotta kind of push uh, your kind of non-academic experiential knowledge of this stuff if you want people to be interested and and so um kind of learning to do that has been really it's been something i've been working on this year so i want to go back to uh the work you've done with trevor meyer um i know that you all have done a, a few things together like you mentioned you're in the group but you were had an invited talk that you all uh did together uh maybe what well, you could talk a little bit about that yeah, so me, uh, so me and Trevor uh, both went to the University of South Carolina. He was one year ahead of me, and uh, we had TA positions at the University of South Carolina. And so one of the things we had, uh, one of the things we were asked to do was to help with the, like most of what we did, did was like textbooks and setting up, like setting up textbooks, setting up classes, and helping mm-hmm. to mentor specific students. But we'd also help with the orientations. And so we went to, uh, I don't remember when that was, a few years back, we did uh, a piece on the greatest hits and misses in freshman comp. Um, that was two years ago. And Great title. Great, great title. <laughs> you know what? I wish that was mine. Uh, but I think that was actually the assistant director of First Year English who came up with that. And... Uh, and, you know, this this is actually really interesting because 
it was it was right after the 2016 election and um and that was just such a pall over everything else so we talked a little bit about mistakes but mostly we just ended up talking about like what are people's fears like how do people what are the things that people are scared about messing up or getting wrong or having happened in the first year composition classroom and we opened it up and 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 we talked about a lot of problems that people had had and, and ways to deal with um with problems as they rise and it's one of those where I, like i don't know if anyone learned anything but i think we all left feeling better uh, like more prepared whether or not we actually learned anything like it was a good it got us in a good mental space i um you mentioned the textbooks you all used down at south carolina and i know uh just from from looking at your cv that you have the carolina rhetoric and you were the editor of that uh textbook um but it looks like it was a change from the carolina reader to the carolina rhetoric is that something you were involved in oh okay so actually the carolina rhetoric reader is our 101 and our carolina rhetoric was a 201 i um, see and so the 101 we've been doing in-house for a while um but uh we, we ended up wanting to make a big change on that. Like we wanted to run it because there are four assignments in that sequence. And so we wanted to run it. We wanted to redesign it. So it was four units and each unit was like, here's a theoretically what we're trying to do. Here's an example of someone doing it. Here's some text you can read so that you, that you then you can do that type of analysis. So it was like a close reading analysis, a social cultural reading, a visual reading, whatever. Um, and then, Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, and then the 201 we hadn't been doing in-house, uh, but there was some discussion about we could do it in-house. And I, being overly ambitious, was like, yeah, we should just do it, like, fully us. Um, it'll be great. And I had this idea that we could set it up based on the five canons of rhetoric. And we could have graduate students and faculty write excerpts on each um, on different facets that we would put under the canon, right? So under invention, we might put like Topoi and we talk about Topoi. Um, and so, and we kind of figured also that would spread the workload around. And so me and the director, so I kind of set up this and, and asked for people, uh, people who would want to write and the director helped me to review what everyone had written and then they re-revise and, kind of organize all that and so the first part was all these kind of like scholars of rhetoric and uh scholars of rhetoric whether they be faculty or graduate students um writing about rhetoric and then the second part was just like readings uh that that students could kind of either use as examples or they could write about and so getting the readings is really weird because like some of it was stuff we had read like out in the world some of the stuff that we'd gotten from a scholarship um and then a lot of it was like reading through essay collections and trying to find things that we thought would work and uh, reading through like other textbooks and being like, Oh, this essay is really cool. Like we'll ask for that one. Um, and so that, yeah, that was, that was a great experience. How's the textbooks different uh, from Carolina and what you were doing there from Northern state. So um, that's interesting. Um, not using in-house textbooks anymore. I was able to kind of choose whatever textbooks I'd want. So when it comes to like my 101s, my 201s, um, you know, for my 101, I use writing that, uh, nope, that's a lie. My, for my business writing classes, I use writing that works. Uh, for my, do you as well? I do. I use writing at works as well. 
Dude, so good. Kind of looking at something from a rhetorical situation. Sponsor the show, writing that word. <laughs> <laughs> I just assume they're going to send me free copies now. <laughs> this is how you get desk copies of textbooks. You come on the big rhetorical <laughs> podcast. I figured this had to be a cash cow for you. Uh, <laughs> y'all can't see him just shaking his head vigorously right now. Okay, so my 101 textbook, I actually used the uh, Green and Lindinsky. I really like that book. Um, and it's a little more processed than the than the uh, books that we would use in South Carolina. I think that is one of those things that is like a strength and a weakness. It's a trade-off. Uh, but it does help my students kind of work through a lot of the processes. Uh, for my 201, I just started using, and I haven't used it yet. I'm going to be using it in the fall, is uh, Cheryl Ball, and there are two other authors on there, uh, writer-designer. And that book I haven't used before. Um, it's Kristen Arola and um, somebody else. Shepard is the last name. Shepard. Ryan P. Shepard, maybe? No, 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 no. no. I should well, get up and go get it off my bookshelf. Yeah, it's give me one. literally like, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Shepard. Jennifer Shepard. Jennifer, we're sorry, Jennifer Shepard. You are not <laughs> Ryan P. Shepard. You're Jennifer Shepard. Yeah, but uh, that book. So it's really weird. I haven't taught with that book yet. I'm very excited to. Um, but I, I run a pedagogy reading group because a lot of folks when I got to NSU they're like, oh, like we're all trained in literature, and we're good, and they're good writing teachers. Like I don't want to say they're not. They're they're very good writing teachers. But they're all like, hey, we want a little bit more work, a little more training. And I was like dude, you want me to assign readings and then talk about pedagogy every other week? Hell yeah. And so we get together, we talk about pedagogy and we are kind of working through, uh, yeah, we were working through like Shipka and self and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And they were getting it, but they were having a hard time being like, you know, it was the, it was the Monday morning question. Like how is this going to help me on, on Monday morning? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to order this textbook for everybody. And like, we're going to talk about the assignments you can create with it. We can talk about like, what is multimodal? Like, let's answer the Monday morning question. And uh, that textbook really did. And so my, my pedagogy group loved it. And then I went and gave this uh, lecture to the Rising Scholars program, which is like, there's in South Dakota who teach for, co- who teach dual credit English classes. And so I went and gave uh, a whole day workshop on rhetorical analysis and multimodality. And I got them desk copies of that book too. And I was like, hey, like check this out. Um, and I've gotten such positive responses from those two groups that I'm like just super excited about using in my classroom. So you, I, we'll talk more about what you're teaching this uh, uh, upcoming fall, but what other scholarship have you got going on? I see you're going to be in Bozeman, Montana. I've never been to Montana before. Um, at the Western States Rhetoric and, and Literacy Conference uh, coming up. What's, what's, what are you going to be talking about there? Okay, so uh, I'm going to be talking, the, the conference theme is on mindfulness. And I don't know a ton about mindfulness. But um, a scholar in the music department, Great Stewart at the University of South Carolina, um, he came into Byron's uh, music, sound class and, and kind of talked about how he looks at sound. And we ended up doing this really cool meditative exercise where like we kind of turn the lights we dim the lights and close your eyes and you like pay attention to your breathing and then like whenever you're feeling it you just start making sounds and then when you're done making sounds you just stop 
And when everyone's done making sounds, um, then it, then the music's over. Okay. So it's like this musical piece that's built on like really vague directions. And so we ended up doing this in Byron's class and it was like calming and it was communal and it was like just this awesome experience. So I was like, okay, like let's, let's take that to the workshop and kind of have people do that. And then let's loop in people from other times and places doing this exact same meditative exercise who so are breathing together as the community that's there, but we're also sounding together with this like larger community that's absent, but their voice is present. And my question is like, do we feel that same type of connection or does having that outside uh, somehow by paying attention to that larger network that we're a part of, like, does that throw the meditation off or does that make it deeper? And I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not going to know until we do it in Bozeman and then we're going to talk about it. So like, I'm super excited about it. Um, and I've been trying to just do more workshops, you know, when I was at computers and writing, uh, we did a remix thing where we kind of made a bunch of sounds together and then we made sonic collages of them. And, um, I, I love doing these kind of more participatory, uh, 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 workshops at conferences, you know, I think that it's a great way for people to invest. And, and the, the kind of work that you have to do for these is, is a lot different than setting up the, the, the essay, right? Like, and it's, and it's a bit difficult because you can't just like take a chunk out of what you're working on and be like, okay, I can just read this, right? You need to really kind of think about this. This is a very particular place. Um, but the rewards and the kind of uh, the, how generative it is, is just super, super wonderful. You're going to have to check back in after this workshop and let us know how it goes the semester is creeping up for some of us it's already begun um as we're planning our classes uh what are you teaching this fall you know actually this fall it's just 101s and 201 uh so my 101 is really cool we're doing a bunch of rhetorical analysis stuff working through that my 201 i'm like super excited about because I have been talking to some librarians and kind of partnered with a library to do some archive work. So what we're going to do, my students are going to kind of question like, what is literacy and what does it mean in the 21st century? And so the first thing they're going to do is their literacy narratives, you know, take some time to think about what is literacy, what's my experience. And they're going to create these kind of multimodal literacy narratives. And I'm going to ask them, they're not required, but they are encouraged to submit them to the uh, literacy narrative archives or the digital archive of literacy narratives, the DALN. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to encourage them to, su to submit there. Uh, then once they've kind of done their own like reflective work, I'm going to ask them to think about, okay, this is how you think about literacy. How has the community that you're currently a part of traditionally thought about li literacy? Like how have we taught it? What are kind of the literacy practices? What are the values and the way, and the way that we're going to do that is we're going to go into, uh, NSU's archives, and they have stuff from South Dakota, Brown County, Aberdeen, and NSU. And we've kind of broken it up into different aspects, right? So like Brown County newspapers, Aberdeen newspapers, uh, syllabi, uh, no, they don't have syllabi, uh, but course uh, lists from NSU, course lists from local high schools. Um, and we're going to talk about different ways that they can analyze these things to get a sense for what was valued or what literacy practices were. So they might look at the newspapers and see like, okay, well, this is kind of how they were laying out. Like this is the, uh, how much text versus how much photo. This is kind of how they were writing their, their headlines. Um, or they might look at 
the course offerings from high school and be like, okay, well, these are the kinds of literature classes. These are the kinds of writing classes that they thought were worth teaching. And yeah, go ahead. When you design, uh, you go ahead, actually. Okay. Uh, I don't know exactly what my students are going to create. You know, I wanted to make sure that I have enough guidance and enough tools that they're, that they're not lost, but I also want them to be able to uh, follow their own interests when they do this. And so working with the librarians has been really useful here uh, because they know the archives. They know so much about how to work with these, these sets. Um, and then I'm kind of bringing these definitions of literacy and these way to, way to think about, um, think about these kind of artifacts. So between the two of us, I think that we're going to have a pretty good class. When you design a project like this, um, where you go into the archives, what kind of things do you do to make sure that we're accessing the data and looking at the archives ethically? Great. So um, that's a really difficult question. It and, is a super difficult question. And besides the fact, <laughs> and besides the fact that it's a difficult question, and that one that like rhetoricians and rhetoric scholars uh, are are currently grappling with, it's also a difficult question because how do you do that in the course of a semester, especially when so much of the time in this semester is like three weeks? I'm really not lecturing; they're just in the library because uh, at NSU a lot of our students work or have athletics. You know, 30% of our school. I think it's 30% of our students are, are athletes and a lot of them work and a lot of them are non-traditional. And so I, I can't, I need to give them time in the archives. I cannot assume that they have the time, the free time to do that on their own. So like three weeks are just in the archives, you know? Um, so how do you, how do you do that in this space? So we're reading some stuff from the national archive associate archivist association. Uh, there's this great uh, piece uh, from the uh, national parks, dealing with their archives and there's this kind of wonderful write-up about like what's the purpose of an archive and so my students are going to read that and get a good sense of uh, the librarian is going to talk about kind of treating the materials and then actually we're reading no we're not reading we're listening to another podcast ideas on fire um there's an interview with tina camped where she's talking about listening to photos and like that's a method that's really specific to her but what comes through that conversation is this idea of care right and so not just care of the materials but care to for the people you're writing about for the communities you're writing about think about the kind of the ways in which they're vulnerable think about the ways in which you can misrepresent them thinking about um and and the and the other thing is 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 paying close attention when she's talking about listening to these photos she's talking in part and i don't want to you know listen to the podcast like she she obviously articulates this better than i will but one of the things she's talking about is taking great care to pay attention to the things you might not otherwise to kind of letting yourself be open um, to understandings that you might not otherwise see. And so I, I think hopefully that we take this kind of idea of care and both caring and being careful. And hopefully we take that to the archive. Yeah. And, 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 and ethic of care, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Ben, anything else you want to add before I let you get off here and go enjoy that nice South Dakota afternoon? <laughs> Man, I already got to wear a hoodie. Um, oh, yeah. It was cold last <laughs> night on our back deck. No, uh, you know, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Uh, I listened to a bunch of episodes before uh, doing this, and it's been awesome to be able to listen to uh, these emergent scholars.
is uh, I love the from computers and writing episode. It's just kind of wonderful. And I think it's awesome that you're doing this. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Ben. And thanks for joining us today. Uh, have a good afternoon. You too. That was my conversation with Dr. Ben Harley. I really enjoyed talking to that guy. Really a smart guy. We met each other. He let me know. I felt ridiculous. I had forgotten. We met each other at Computers and Writing this year at Michigan State University. After we talked, I actually remembered uh, meeting him. So, Ben, I do remember meeting you. Uh... As uh, we were on our way to uh, record at Computers and Writing Bowling Night, I ran into Ben. So it was great to catch up with him, uh, and I look forward to seeing the work he does in the future. Okay, so that's another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to join us. Are you about to hit the job market, or you want to talk about your dissertation project or a recent publication? shoot us an email. Reach out to us. We want to talk to you and acknowledge your labor and your commitment to the field, to the discipline. This Emerging Scholars series will offer you the opportunity to contribute to the ongoing conversations in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of the field, of the discipline. The Emerging Scholars series core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. So make sure you go and seek out the work of Dr. Ben Harley. You can find him on Twitter and uh, we'll be excited to see the work he's doing going forward okay that's it i feel good about it i'm gonna put it out there until next time uh, be kind to one another and uh, always be listening 